Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. So you can follow along in your little bulletin or turn there in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Do I need to? Maybe I should wait till we get the the music. Thanks. Okay, Second Corinthians eleven one through four. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Let's pray. Father, we just bow before your throne and say, God, that we need you. Um, We invite you here uh, this morning to teach us from your word. God, we just um, desire to know you more, to uh, be faithful, to uh, embrace only Christ and have a pure devotion to him alone and to the gospel as revealed in your word. Father, I pray that you would protect us as a church and as individuals from Um, the lies and the craftiness of Satan. God, we know that though he is a defeated foe and you are far greater than he, and he is no match for you in any way, and yet he is cunning and subtle, and every word he speaks is a lie. So, Father, I pray that we would not be naive or unaware of his schemes. God, that we would uh, just be on our guard, that we would stand firm, that we... um, would would guard our life and our doctrine closely, and that we would be just saturated with and meditating on your word day and night to uh, uh, so that we do not uh, go astray from the gospel of grace, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, as Josh comes to share the word with us, I pray that you would empower him, that you would speak through him mightily, God, that you would even open our eyes to areas, God, where we have maybe uh, allowed our hearts or minds to drift away. Um, God, we invite you to come and do your work among us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Am I through? Okay. Great to be with you this morning and super excited this morning to share this word. Um, What I want to talk to you about this morning is a bad word. It really isn't a bad word. But it's uh, oftentimes seen as a bad word in our in, in our day and age. I want to talk to you this morning about a word that starts with D. It's it's the word doctrine. Oh my goodness! Don't talk about doctrine, right? Now I want to talk to you about doctrine, good doctrine versus bad doctrine, healthy doctrine versus unhealthy doctrine. The reason why I jokingly say it's a bad word is because oftentimes it's uh, it's seen as that way. It's seen as something that's divisive. It's seen as something that's unnecessary. 
sometimes there, there might be two camps. One that over, I think emphasizes doctrine in kind of a hostile and divisive way, and, and another side that that says, "Oh, all that stuff is unimportant. It just matters that we love God." So, unfortunately, doctrine can be divisive. But the reality is, everyone has doctrine. Everyone does. Doctrine simply means teaching or instruction. Everybody lives with a sense of instru- with with instruction or teaching that guides areas of your life, and it's no different for professing Christians. Even a position of no doctrine is, in a sense, a doctrinal position. So everyone has doctrine. Everyone has teaching that that guides part of your life. And it's undeniable that the New Testament places a high importance on doctrine. So from now on, I'm going to say, instead of doctrine, I'm just going to say teaching, okay? The New Testament places a high importance on teaching, on, on sound teaching, on healthy teaching, on healthy doctrine. In 1 Timothy 4, Timothy is, uh, Paul says to Timothy that he's constantly nourished by sound teaching, by sound doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul warns of those who don't follow sound teaching. And he goes on to say they have a healthy craving for division. They have a healthy craving for controversy and things like that. So doctrine is important. It matters. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, again, writing to Timothy, says difficult times are coming. When people will turn away from the truth, they won't endure sound teaching. They won't endure sound doctrine. And they will wander off into myths. They will wander off into strange teachings. They will want to gather around them teachers that will tickle, tickle their ears. And then in Titus 2, verse 7, Titus is urged to be an example in pure teaching or pure doctrine. This is just a sampling, but this is a very important thing in the Bible. So this week I was struggling with how to approach this. How do you approach talking about doctrine? Of course, we're, we're in a series on the church. We're wrapping this up here in the next couple of weeks. And so talking about doctrine is something that seems like it's an important thing to talk about. What is Christian doctrine? But I struggled a bit with how to approach this. We could do a lengthy, weeks-long study on Christian doctrine. And we could. We could, we could unpack the 10 non-negotiable Christian doctrines that we ought to believe together. But we're not going to do that, obviously. We, I'm teaching one week on it. Uh, we could say that good doctrine is just whatever the Bible says. And that's true, right? Good doctrine is whatever the Bible says. And then I could spend this morning talking about the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, the clarity of Scripture, and say, this is what, doctrine, this is what good doctrine is. It's what the Bible says. So let's talk about the Bible but I'm not going to do that either. We could, I could, this morning, very briefly and at a very high level, outline the ten essential or eight essential, I'm throwing out ten, eight or ten essential truths of the Christian faith, but I'm not going to do that either. Rather, I'm going to deal with doctrine the way that Paul deals with doctrine in this passage this morning. And I think Paul instructs us on what is central and what is, on what is the hub of Christian doctrine. Paul's concerned about the people of Corinth that they're turning away from pure and sincere devotion to Christ. 
So what's happened? Well, there, there have been some that have come in with strange messages, strange teachings. They are talking about Jesus, but Paul says it's a different Jesus. They're proclaiming a message that they're calling the gospel, but it is what Paul calls a different gospel. It's another gospel. It's another message. Paul likens it to the, to the demonic attack on Eve in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came and deceived her. Paul says in a similar way, I'm, I'm concerned that just as Eve was deceived by Satan and his cunning, you are being led away from pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. Paul calls the perpetrators, these false teachers, he calls them sarcastically super apostles. Apparently these men made big claims about themselves and their message of Jesus and their message that they called the gospel. But again, Paul says, different Jesus, different gospel. The most dangerous messages, the most likely ones to lead people astray are those that have some semblance of truth to them. Right? And the more central the truth that messages are peppered with, even false messages that they're peppered with, the more central the truth, the more risky it is to lead people astray. The more likely it is to lead people astray. Some have suggested, some commentators have suggested that the false teachers were pushing a health and wealth message contrary to the one that Paul preached and experienced. Paul did not preach or experience a health and wealth message. He was not wealthy and he suffered incredible persecution and you might say lack of health. Paul doesn't just call the Corinthians back to some experience that they had but he calls them back to the Jesus he preached to them. He calls them back to the gospel that they had received through him. Now, some might say, looking at this objectively, we probably, many here probably wouldn't say this because we believe that the Bible and is written by inspired men. The New Testament's written by apostles, inspired men. But some might say, who does Paul think he is? Maybe these guys do have a good message. Maybe they, maybe they have really encountered Jesus. But Paul is speaking on apostolic authority. Paul is someone who had seen Christ after he had been risen from the dead. And Jesus had sent to be an apostle primarily to the Gentiles. So Paul says, whatever they say, if it's a different Jesus, come back to the one I spoke to you. If you hear a message that's contrary, a gospel that's contrary to the one I preached to you, Reject it and come back to the one that I preached to you. Now, the important connection I love in this passage is this. Paul says that bad doctrine, bad teaching, inevitably leads people away from devotion to Jesus. Okay? Sometimes we, sometimes we, I don't know, maybe not in this room, conversations I've had with people, doctrine and relationship as, are seen as mutually exclusive things. Okay, some people, some people emphasize doctrine, other people just emphasize intimacy and relationship with Jesus. Paul says there's no division between doctrine and relationship with Christ. 
you get off in your doctrine, it's inevitably going to affect your devotion to Jesus. And you cannot have true devotion to Jesus without doctrine, without good doctrine, without healthy doctrine, without a true Jesus that we are devoted to, without a true message that we have experienced and encountered. And I think Paul would also say that true doctrine leads to robust and deep connection with the person Jesus. It's not pie in the sky. It's not abstract thoughts that make us smarter. Doctrine certainly can do that, but to really believe it and really know it and really walk in it inevitably leads us to devotion to Jesus. Not getting our doctrinal ducks in a row. And oh, how I needed that even this week. Okay? I needed that this week. I needed God to address me through this passage this very week in that area. Because I'm someone who likes to think about things and connect things and, and I can lose sight of devotion to Jesus. I can have my systematic theology, at least in my mind, pretty squared away. And I can lose sight of devotion to Christ. So this morning, at the risk of sounding trite and truncating Christian doctrine, I'm going to focus on one point. Okay, one point. I think it is good to affirm doctrinal beliefs. All right, I, I absolutely do. On the scriptures, on the Trinity, on the atonement, on a whole range of things, on baptism and Lord's Supper, the sacraments, the Christian sacraments, on a whole range of things to talk about and affirm truth and know where we stand on things. But this morning I want to affirm that the center, excuse me, I want to affirm the center and hub of Christian teaching. So my big idea is this, right? My big idea. This is what I want to get across today. The center and hub of Christian doctrine or of Christian teaching must be the revelation of Jesus Christ as given in the Bible. This is the blazing center. This is the hub where everything else comes from. This is this has to be the center. And Christian doctrine inevitably, truly believed and walked out, leads to devotion to Christ. This is what keeps us from wandering into silly and irreverent myths and controversies. Devotion to Jesus. The Jesus in the Bible. The gospel that we have in the scriptures that Paul preached, that Peter preached, that Jesus preached, that Isaiah preached, that God preached way back in Genesis 3. And the outcome of good doctrine is pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. It is pure because it's based on biblical revelation. And it's sincere, or it's single, it's simple devotion to Jesus, because it's what's central. And so this morning, I want us to think, say, I want to get, I want to make sure I got this right. I want to make sure I have this right, the central teaching of Christian doctrine that centers on Jesus in the Bible. And so I want, I want to support this thesis in three ways. Excuse me, I want to give you, I want to give you three reasons why the center and hub of Christian doctrine is the revelation of Jesus in the Bible. 
and that it leads to relationship or devotion to Christ. Reason number one is, excuse me, the reason number one is the source of Christian teaching. Reason number two is the main message of Christian teaching. And reason number three is the effect of Christian teaching. So first, why is the center or hub of Christian doctrine Christ in the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Bible? First is the source of Christian teaching, which is, again, the Bible. Christian teaching comes from the Bible. It doesn't come from different texts. It doesn't come from even ancient good texts. It comes from the scriptures. Christians largely affirm that the 66 books of the Bible are what's supposed to be there. And we are to learn about what God wants us to know from the Bible. And so Christian doctrine comes from the scriptures. Now, there are a number of ways to read the Bible, okay? And I want to I want to just point out three or four this morning, three or four ways to read the Bible that I think are wrong ways to read the Bible. Let me just put it that way, okay? The first way is the moralistic or self-help method, okay? It sees the Bible as more or less a roadmap or a game plan for life, Okay? God has a game plan for us. And the best game plan ever you could ever get in life is found in the Bible. Okay? And so we got problems. The Bible has answers. We want to figure things out. The Bible has answers for us. We have questions. It has answers. Okay? This is the the moralistic self-help. The Bible is our roadmap or game plan for life. I don't think that's the right way to read the Bible. Of course, the Bible has incredibly practical things to say to us. But the Bible is so much more than just a pragmatic game plan for life. It has much more to say to us than just how to get through our life unscathed or not very scathed. Another inappropriate way, I think, to read the Bible is what I would call the cracking the code method. And it sees the Bible as like this safe. And if we could just find the right code, we could unlock all of these mysteries. Now, some of you might giggle about that, but I grew up in a church, and there were a couple people in the church, probably more than a couple people, that were really into this. And I can't remember what the book was called, something like the Bible Code or something like that. But a a few people in the church were really into this. And they're reading this book that talked about if you took the first... You know, every seven letters in the Bible or something and wrote it out, it gave you secret messages. And that might sound kind of sarcastic and like, well, who really, there's not that many people that think that way. But there are a lot of people that think, I'm just looking in the Bible for mysteries, new things, new things, new mysteries that need to be unlocked. Clearly, the Bible's not meant to be read that way. Another way is to basically read the Bible in grossly divided ways. We read the Old Testament basically like a Jewish person under the law without taking into account the New Testament or the coming of Christ and and likewise read the New Testament without taking into account the Old Testament which shows why Jesus had to come to live under the law of God obeying it perfectly and die on the cross for our sins so that God could be merciful and just in salvation. And another way that I think is inappropriate to read the Bible is simply to read ourselves into every story. As though the Bible is mostly about me. And so we read David and Goliath and we see ourselves in the story. 
We read about Daniel in the lion's den and we see ourselves in the story. Now, to be clear, the Bible has application everywhere for human beings in every area of life and for all kinds of circumstances. But the Bible is not primarily a book about us. The Bible is a book about God and his saving work that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The Bible is primarily the story of God and even more specifically the story of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says, In times past God spoke to us or spoke to our fathers in various ways through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Some might say, ah, but that's just reading the New Testament about Jesus and the Old Testament about the way that God spoke to the prophets. No, the Old Testament is about Jesus as well. Edmund Clowney, who is uh, dead now, but he was a professor at um, Westminster Seminary, in his book, Christ in All of Scripture, says, to see the text in relation to Christ is to see it in its larger context, the context of God's purpose in Revelation. Now, some may say, and, and I hope you would say this, well, who cares about what Edmund Clowney says? Is that actually what the Bible says? Does the Bible actually affirm that all of Scripture is about Jesus, ultimately? And I believe it does. Jesus himself affirms this, I think, in at least two places in the Gospels. One is in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus says to the Pharisees, he's rebuking them. He says, you search the Scriptures diligently because you think that in the Scriptures there is eternal life. But, he says, these, namely the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, bear witness of me, and you reject me. Jesus says the Old Testament is about him. The Old Testament from Genesis to Revelation is about Christ. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he's on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. They don't recognize that it's him, but they stop and they convinced Jesus to stay with them, and he begins opening up the scriptures to them. And it says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Isn't that amazing? I would have loved to have been there. Wouldn't that have been amazing? I mean, when, G- when, when, Jesus, when it says that in Moses and all the prophets, it's shorthand for saying in all the Old Testament, I would have loved to have been there as Jesus scrolled through Leviticus and was showing himself in Leviticus and first and second Samuel and first and second Kings and Joshua and Judges and Isaiah and Malachi as he was telling them and showing them, interpreting for them all the places in Moses and the prophets and all the Old Testament, the scriptures concerning himself. The obvious passage, things like Isaiah 53, well-known prophecy of, of Christ and the suffering servant who suffered on our behalf. But even passages like beloved children's church stories like David and Goliath is pointing to Christ. It's pointing to Jesus. 
Stories like Daniel in the lion's den. It's pointing to Jesus from all the way back in Genesis 3 when God said to the serpent, you guys remember this? When God is speaking to the snake who had just deceived Adam and Eve, he said, I'm going to set enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. What's that talking? That's talking about Jesus, right? From Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22 is this story pointing to, foreshadowing, prophesying of Jesus Christ or looking back at what Christ has done. The source of Christian teaching is the Bible and the Bible centers on Jesus Christ. The second reason why the center and hub of Christian doctrine is Christ is because of the main message of Christian teaching. The main message of Christian teaching is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian teaching centers on the message of salvation, the message of how sinners can be saved. And that message is all about Jesus. Doctrine informs the Christian message of salvation, which is found through Christ and found in Christ. Now, the gospel takes into account the, uh, takes into account much more than what you might normally found at what I would call a John 3.16 pep rally. It takes into, takes into account the creation of all things by a holy and good and wise God who made all things for his glory and to reflect him. The gospel also takes into account the craftiness of the devil who came in and deceived Adam and Eve. It also takes into account Adam and Eve's fall into sin and how all of humanity since Adam and Eve have been plunged into sin so that we are born with an inclination torn towards sin. It covers the giving of the law to show both God's righteousness and expose our sin. It covers how generation after generation after generation cannot obey God's law on their own because of inherited corruption. G.K. Chesterton is well known for saying, of all the Christian doctrines, inherited sin is the easiest to affirm because we have thousands of years of empirical data to back it up. And we do, don't we? We have thousands of years to back this up. The gospel also takes into account the promises of God to people like Abraham and David. The gospel takes into account the coming of the one who would take away enmity with God, namely Jesus through his own perfect obedience to the law and offering on the cross, thus bearing judgment in the place of those who deserve it, namely you and I. The gospel covers the full and complete reconciliation and restoration with God who originally made us for his glorious for his glory and for glorious fellowship with himself it covers all the blessing the gospel does that is that has come to us by virtue of salvation in Christ such that Paul says in Ephesians 1 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. The gospel, Tim Keller's well known for saying, and I probably said this too, is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's the way in and it's the way on. The central message for Christians 
is the gospel. We don't get saved by the gospel and then work our way through the law by our own grit and obedience. The gospel is the way in and the way on. And this gospel message that begins with the creator and ends with God, the redeemer of all things, centers on Christ. It centers on Jesus. So much so that Colossians chapter 1, verses like 15 to 21, roughly, somewhere around there, talks about Jesus being the Lord of creation. He created everything. Everything was created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the Lord of creation. He made everything, and everything was made for him. And he's the Lord of redemption. He is the firstborn from the dead. And this, the gospel, is the message we have for the world. This is the only message we have for the world. But the world is desperately in need of good news. And we have it. We have an amazing gospel. We have an amazing message. And the Bible, excuse me, the Christian Christian doctrine centers on this main message, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third reason why the hub and center of Christian doctrine is Christ revealed in Scripture is because of the effect of Christian teaching. Christian teaching truly believed that gets into us through and through. And I believe I, I realize this is a lifelong thing. I mean, this is a lifelong process we're in where we grow in our understanding of Christ and the gospel and God through his word. But when it gets into us, you guys, it changes us. It changes us. The effect of Christian doctrine is not just happy thoughts. It's not mind over matter. And it's not, it's not good news that at some point in the distant future, God will come and rescue us and bring us to heaven. Praise God, we do have a glorious future. But Christian teaching changes us at the core of our being. A gospel received, the gospel of Jesus Christ received, when Christ himself is received into our lives, it changes us. And what does it change us into? It doesn't make us a better, uh, there's a book out right now, become a better you. Forget about that. Become a brand new person. Don't become a better you. Become a brand new you. All right? That looks nothing like the old you. Okay? God's intent and purpose is that the effect of Christian teaching, the effect of doctrine is that Jesus Christ himself is being formed in our lives. That Christ himself is being formed in us. Isn't this the most exhilarating thing in the world? That God himself, who made everything, we are becoming more and more and more like him. One, of the, I, one passage I love is in Romans 8. I think it's verse 29. And it says this, Those whom he foreknew, God... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's plan from eternity past 
was to save you and not whisk you away to heaven someday, but to make you like Jesus Christ. And how does that happen? It happens as we grow in our understanding of Christ, or if I could put it this way, as we grow in Christian teaching. As we grow in Christian doctrine, the Holy Spirit takes the truth of God's word, the truth concerning Christ, and forms his life in us. So we begin to look more and more like Christ. 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John says, For we don't know exactly what we're going to be like, but we know that when Jesus appears, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. And those who hope in this purify themselves even as Christ is pure. So as we, figuratively speaking, see Christ more and more through the truth of God's word in the gospel, we become more and more like him. And this is not just something in the future. John isn't just saying someday in the future when he actually appears before us, we'll be like him. Of course, that's his main point there. But he's also saying, even now, those who hope in this become more like him in purity and holiness. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, this happens now when we behold Jesus by faith in the gospel. We become more like him. So God is at work in us. This happens as we behold and worship Christ. As we behold him in the gospel presented to us in the scriptures, the main message being the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ, the very image of Christ is being formed in us. So we become more and more like him. Paul said to the Galatians in his concern for them, he says, I labor, I think it was to the Galatians, I labor like a mother in childbirth that Christ may be formed in you. That's God's purpose. That's the effect of Christian teaching is that we become more and more like Christ. Is that, does that excite anybody else? I, I don't know. I mean, it's good news. So, all of this, God presented in the Jesus Christ in the Bible, the Bible's central message being Jesus, the main message of Christian teaching being the gospel, which is a message of Christ and salvation through Christ, and the effect of Christian teaching being becoming more and more like Jesus. All of this is aimed at pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And so I want to just park here for a bit. Where are we at on this? Pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Where are we at on this? Devoted to the Jesus that Paul preached. The Jesus of the scriptures. The one the Bible is all about. The one that Moses, Abraham, Isaiah, the Gospels, Peter, John talked about the one who saved you the one who rescued you from your sin the one your hope is anchored in i hope it is anyways the one you're becoming like how's your devotion to christ and let me put it this way how's your devotion 
to God's word. The scriptures that Jesus is found in. How's your devotion to the gospel? Is the gospel just the way you got in and now you're plodding along? Like Paul said to the Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now trying to be perfected in the flesh? Are you now just trying to work your way through life? Or are you devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Continued, continuing to devote yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The devil is incredibly sneaky. And I thought it would just, I may be speaking to the choir today, but that's okay. I thought it, it might be profitable just to talk about a couple ways that I think the, de- the devil is sneaky in our day. One way is to proclaim a Jesus, a Jesus is out there being proclaimed who is only a nice guy, Jesus. He's just a nice guy. He's the all-benevolent Savior. Never has a judgmental word to say to anybody. He's just nice. It's not the Jesus we see in the Bible. Okay? Or another one is the no-hell Jesus. The No Hell Jesus, a famous book came out a few years ago by a very popular pastor. I don't know if he's, I don't think he's a pastor anymore, but very popular pastor and author called Love Wins. And the message of the book was that Jesus will save everyone. Hell will be empty. But the Jesus found in the Gospels speaks of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Another sneaky message is the self-esteem Jesus. That Jesus just exists to make us, this is an overstatement, but he mainly exists to make us feel better about ourselves so that we find ourselves and who we are and become all that God intends for us to be. There's some truth in that. But Jesus does not exist for our self-esteem. Or, of course, the prosperity Jesus. The one who wants everyone to be rich and never suffer persecution or pain. Unfortunately, Jesus said when some men wanted to follow him, they come and said, Lord, we'll follow, follow you wherever you want to go. And Jesus turned to them and said, Are you sure? He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Follow Jesus, you might be sleeping under a tree. Okay? That's what he's saying to him. You might be laying your head on a rock and sleeping under a tree. When, when we know Christ and we're devoted to Christ, And the gospel has made its way into our lives and it's going deeper and flourishing through and through in our lives. And we have drunk deeply of Jesus, Christ and the gospel. 
We won't want to drink from another fountain ever. We won't want to go anywhere else ever. Paul is saying here in this passage, what are you doing? These men are preaching a Jesus. It's a different Jesus. You're being led astray to this devotion you once had. To Jesus, to the, to the Jesus I brought to you. They're preaching a gospel, but it is a false message. You once were devoted to the gospel that I proclaimed to you. Come back to it. When we're devoted to Christ, we'll be able to sniff out counterfeits a mile away. And I'm not saying we'll become heresy hunters and try to beat down every person that doesn't think exactly like us, all right? Don't be like that. But some of these messages that are just, quite frankly, talking about a different Jesus, we'll be able to see it. We'll be able to sniff it out from a long ways away. And when we know Christ deeply in a devoted way, when we know him, and the more we know him, the more we'll want to know him. And the more we will want the gospel to be in us through and through. And the more we will want to drop our anchor in Christ. And the more we will want to reflect him and become like him. And the more we'll want to share him with others. A couple of weeks ago, um, Alyssa and I, once a month, we do, uh, we help uh, put on a event, I guess. It's, it's a prayer and worship event. Uh, it's at Kingdom House of Prayer. And Alyssa helps lead worship and I help do some prayer leading. And it's on Saturday, it's on a Saturday night, Saturday night once a month. And, um, that Saturday afternoon, I was just praying and seeking the Lord for that night. Just, God, what do you want to say? How do you want to lead in prayer? Uh, through me and the people that are going to be there. And one of the passages the Lord gave me was Revelation 2. Matt read it earlier, uh, and, and specifically verses 1 to 7, talking about the church of Ephesus. And Jesus commends the church of Ephesus that they were discerning, they were righteous, they, um, they were doing good things, they were busy at work, for the gospel. But he had one thing against them. They had left the love they had at first. And I, I felt like the Lord just pointed me to that passage. Like, oh, what a great passage. I'm going to share that tonight. I'm going to pray that for, for the church here in Ankeny. Just generally, real life church. Just the church generally. That we'd come back to our first love. That was Saturday night. Monday morning. Okay, it was a great night that night, by the way. Monday morning. Through some circumstances, conversation with my wife, interaction with my kids early in the morning, I just realized it may have been for the church, but it was more for me. It was more for me. Revelation 2, 1 to 7, the church of, La- church of Ephesus could say, Josh, I'm speaking to you. 
And I wonder if that would track with anyone else here today. We're busy doing God's work, trying to do the right things, trying to be a good parent, a good husband, a good wife, trying to plod along in life, serving in the church, loving our neighbors, making meals for the family that needs help, doing good stuff. And yet, we've lost the love we've had it, we had at first. Or other, I think NASB might say something like, our first love, lost or left or lost our first love. I, I think, on behalf of Christ today, saying come back to your first love, Jesus. The relationship that we have with Christ is not like a business partnership. It's not like an employer-employee relationship. It's much more like a romance. And I think Paul alludes to that in our passage for this morning. He says to the Corinthians, I was jealous for you, for I betrothed you as a pure virgin to Christ. I betrothed you as a pure virgin to Christ. And you've walked... I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. He didn't say you've walked away. He said, I'm afraid that you're walking away from him. And so I hear the Lord saying, at least I think I do this morning, and he's saying this to me, and maybe to you, some of you anyways, where's the romance? You were betrothed as a pure virgin to Christ, your bridegroom. Where's the romance? There's a song written by Sovereign Grace Music. Just gave it a plug to Luke here this morning, so who knows, maybe we'll sing it sometime. That's what I do, by the way, is I find songs and I, two years later, Luke sings them, so I'm joking. And the song is called, All I Have is Christ. Let, let these words sink in. I once was lost in dark, darkest night, Yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray for us as a church, individuals here corporately, God, insofar as this message has struck a chord and really put it, you put your finger on something that you would lead us back to 
a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Father, I repent for making life about all kinds of good things, but losing sight of what is central, losing sight of what is supreme, losing sight of what is most important, devotion to Jesus. Connection, deep connection with Christ, but not some Christ of my own fancy, not some Christ I've made up in my own imagination, not Jesus made in my image, but the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus found in the gospel, the Jesus that you are making me more like. Oh God, gracious God and Father, may we say like this song I just read, Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. God, I pray you'd bring us back, God, and and grant us just this romance, if it has been lost, that we would know we've been betrothed as a pure bride to Jesus. And we want to be simply, sincerely, and purely devoted to Christ. Help us, God, I pray, that we would glorify Christ in all that we do, reflecting him, and that we would just so freely and happily share the Jesus that so satisfies our soul with others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you today and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. The song we sang earlier about Lord bless me and keep me and cause your face to shine upon me. It has through Christ. And may he continually shine his face upon us through Jesus all the rest of our days. If you want prayer for anything this morning, uh, come down front. I'd love to pray with you. Um, there would be a, a small group of us down here to pray. If it's something concerning the message or just prayer for, for, uh, for healing, whatever it is, we want to pray for you this morning. You're dismissed.